that was a bit of a song called Galaxy, recorded by War in 1978. Good morning. Welcome to Mountain Radio Astronomy for the month of February. I'm Sue Ann Heatherly. I'm your host again this morning. And with us today is Jay Lockman. Jay, you might recognize as a familiar face around the county because you can find him playing alongside other local musicians at the Opera House and other places around the county. But for today, anyway, it's uh, more appropriate that he's also an, an astronomer, and he works here at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Green Bank, and he investigates the Milky Way. And of late, he's been discovering bubbles. So we're going to talk to Jay today about the Milky Way and about the bubbles he's been discovering. Thanks for joining us this morning. It's good to be here, Sue Ann. So Jay, by way of background, before we get into the story of your bubbles, uh, can you Give us a, a picture of what the Milky Way looks like in general. Well, the Milky Way, that, that band of stars that we see across the sky on a clear night, is uh, a flattened system, kind of like a pancake or a frisbee uh, that's rotating around. And so uh, it's mostly stars, but the stars were formed out of a gas. And the stars condensed out of the gas kind of the way raindrops will condense out of a cloud. And there's still some of that gas left around. Um, and, but it's mostly the stars that we see at night. And they um, hold themselves together in a big system, each one pulling on another. The, the gravity of it holds it all together. How do we know? Know what? What the Milky Way looks like. Well, we can see. I mean, we can look out at stars. We can see stars at different distances. We can measure their velocities so we can tell how the thing is spinning. Um, you can actually, you learn a lot about nearby objects and then you look for similar things um, that are further away. And so you can just kind of march off in different distances looking at one thing after another. So do we live in this, um, this frisbee? Are we? we in we're, we're in the frisbee. We're about um, two-thirds, maybe a little bit less than that, out from the center. So we're kind of in the suburbs. Of, uh, of the system and about in the middle of it going up and down. So we're about in the middle of the flat part of the pancake and about two-thirds of the way out. So when you describe a pancake, it, um, it means that the, this disk we live in is, is fairly thin compared to how big around it is? Oh yeah, it's, it's only um, uh, maybe 5% as thick as it is round. So it is very much like a pancake. That's mm -hmm. a pretty good rough size of it. Okay. Now, obviously, you're a radio astronomer. You don't study the stars because they give off visible light and not much in the way of radio, right? Well, some stars give off radio waves at certain phases of their life. When they're just being born, they can heat up all the gas around them and give off radio waves. Uh, some stars have uh, winds that really is a wind. It's matter just being blown off the star by the action of the star itself. And those can be sources of radio waves. And then at the end of a star's life, it can be a very uh, pronounced source of radio waves if it undergoes an explosion. But you're right. Most of the stars in the Milky Way are not strong emitters of radio waves. We would not be able to, de to, to detect the sun with our radio telescopes if it was on the other side of the Milky Way. Okay. So what is it that you study mostly? Well, what I study mostly is the gas that the stars came from. Because the process of stars forming in the Milky Way is something which is still going on. Uh, the stars that we see in the Milky Way originated in a cloud of gas that collapsed into this big pancake. But that, a lot of them, most of the stars are very, very old, billions of years old, like the sun. But the process of star formation is not over. And each year, uh, there's another new star formed somewhere in the Milky Way. And so um, 
the they are forming out of these clouds of gas. So in a way, the the gas that's in the Milky Way, uh, which we can study because it gives off a lot of radio waves, that is that represents the future of the galaxy. Gal galaxies that have run out of gas. Uh, they run out of star formation. It's just a system that's growing older and older. But the Milky Way still has areas like in Orion's belt. If you look in the constellation Orion, which is up in the sky these nights, uh, just below Orion's belt, you'll see a fuzzy patch. And that fuzzy patch is a place where new stars are being born even as we speak. And they're forming out of this interstellar gas, and the gas gives off radio waves. So we can study both the beginnings of star formation with radio waves and also then the the end products of star formation. And in a way, uh, this ties into a bigger question, not only of where the stars came from, but where the Milky Way itself came from. And that's something that I've been interested in and working uh, on in the last few years. You know, we know that the solar system condensed out of a cloud of gas, and you had the sun at the center, and then you had this pancake, this disk of gas around the sun, and that's where the planets condensed in a ring. Uh, and so the, all the planets, most of the planet orbits lie in a kind of disk. Um, and so in, in a way, the, the, you can think of the solar system as kind of a miniature Milky Way. Um, but we also know that uh, there was debris left over after the formation of the solar system. It's kind of like construction debris. Now, I've been involved in renovating a house for the past seven years, and so I know a lot about construction debris. This is stuff that, you know, material that is sometime going to be part of the house or maybe didn't quite make it into the original construction is out there in the yard, and you worry about it. Uh, we have that in, the, in the, the solar system, too, and they're called comets and asteroids. When a comet lights up the sky, that's something that's left over from the formation of the solar system that hasn't quite got incorporated into the big bodies yet. So we like to study comets because they give us a, a snapshot, a picture of what the material was like that ended up creating the sun and creating the planets. Uh, you know, you have a lot of weathering on the surface of the earth. You have a lot of geological processes that wiped away a lot of traces of the early history of our planet and of the solar system. But in the comets, you have a, a chunk of something that's pretty primeval that hasn't been processed very much and that, that got, got uh, kind of left out of the process of, of creating the solar system. Well, that's a long-winded way of, of talking about what I've been doing, uh, which is actually, I think that there are things like that with the Milky Way, too. When the Milky Way was formed, everything didn't happen all at once. Like the solar system, there were parts that condensed first, and there were parts that kind of lingered. And there's some construction debris around, things that were in the neighborhood of the Milky Way but didn't quite get there in time and so aren't quite here yet but are falling in and being incorporated and caught up in what's going on with the Milky Way. So how do you know what's um, construction debris, stuff that was part of the earliest years of the Milky Way, the earliest epochs of the Milky Way, and what's been processed and is just sort of garbage of the Milky Way? That's a really great question because uh, you see a cloud of gas and you don't know its history. You don't know whether it's just arrived or whether it has been expelled by a star or from, really. But, but we're just now beginning to get a handle on a couple of these things. And one of them was, uh, and I mean, one of the tools we have was something that you just alluded to. Uh, the fact is that as stars evolve and as stars give off gas and as the big ones explode at the end of their life, 
they really change the area around them. Um, well, when the big explosion, it changes the area a lot. But also, the, the, the material that a star expels at the end of its life has been through nuclear processing in the stars. And so it really looks quite different than the primordial gas that the star was formed out of. In the course of a star's life, it turns hydrogen into helium and then helium into carbon. And in these explosions at the end, they can create a whole slew of heavier elements, things like iron and nickel and, and zinc and... Uh, all these sort of things. And so if we can look at a gas cloud and see how much of these heavy elements it has in it, we can kind of date it. We know that uh, a cloud with uh, a lot of iron in it has been around the Milky Way a long time because it's had the enrichment by this successive generation of stars. But if we find clouds that don't have many of these heavy metals in, then we think, well, there's a good chance that these things have not been through the Milky Way or haven't been there very much. Okay, so um, we've had a few space missions here in the last few years that have gone out and taken a sample of material from the mm -hmm. solar system. But that doesn't happen very often. How is it that astronomers know that there's iron present or that there are, that, a, that some of these processes uh, have gone in these, on? In these gas clouds mm -hmm. that I'm studying, yes. Um, well, you know, you can get signals, uh, you can get information about an object a lot of ways. And one is you can just pick it up and feel it and look at it, smell it, break it apart. And um, they've done that in a couple cases with bits of comets, sent out things that can catch pieces of comets and bring them back. Another way is that uh, you can look at it, okay? And, you know, if you look at things, you can, you can tell something, some, you can tell a lot of things about an object by just looking at it. But another way is that uh, you can let nature send you the signals. Uh, there, if you heat up, well, I mean, you just let's just think about fireworks. Fireworks is a great example because when a firework goes off, it has lots of different colors, and the firework manufacturers control these colors very precisely to, to get the effect that they want. And they, they make the colors by putting in different amounts of different materials. And so I think it's, um, gosh, what is it that makes the red? Is it strontium? If they put the element strontium, I think, in fireworks, it makes a very brilliant red because that particular element, when you heat it up or burn it, gives off that particular kind of light. And so I understand that it's really great to look at fireworks through these kind of prism glasses that they, that they get, these little um, uh, diffraction glasses. Um, and so that's, that's something to think about the next 4th of July. But in the same way, um, if we, we have gas clouds that get heated up when they come near stars and they glow, and they glow with the signature of these different elements. So we can actually measure pretty accurately how much iron, how much carbon, how much calcium, how much zinc uh, are in different clouds by the very different signatures that they give off. Now, some of these signals come off uh, visible to our eye, like the fireworks, but some of the signals that come off, they come off as radio waves. And that's what we specialize in studying here at Green Bank. So we can take the big radio telescope and we can tune it to hydrogen frequency and know how much hydrogen is out there. And we can tune it to helium frequency and know how much helium is out there. Now, the work I'm doing to actually find out how many metals there are in these clouds, it's just not practical to do it at radio wavelengths. So I'm uh, collaborating with other astronomers that work in the ultraviolet, and they work in, in optical at some of the big telescopes on the ground or the Hubble telescope, or lately doing a lot of work in the infrared.
And infrared is like heat radiation. And that turns out to be a good way of seeing how much dust there is out there in space. Because not only is there gas out in space, but there's little bits of dust, just little particulate matter. And uh, it turns out that these primordial clouds have really different dust than clouds in the Milky Way. Uh, it it kind of makes sense because the clouds in the Milky Way have had a lot of these elements scattered around. And you know you get stuff scattered around and pretty much it gets dirty. And uh, that's just what dust is like. It's like little solid particles of heavy elements that are there floating in interstellar space. But these more uh, primordial clouds, not having been around very many exploding stars, they just don't have as much dust. And so if we can look at the infrared signature and compare it with the signature that we get from hydrogen using the radio telescopes, we can pretty much tell a lot about the history of these clouds. So are you detecting them? Are they... Are they out there above and below the Milky Way, falling into the Milky Way, adding to our, our disk? Well, several of us did an experiment uh, some years ago with the 140-foot telescope here in Greenbank where we tried to make a census of this matter which was likely to be raining down on the Milky Way. And we found that something more than a third of the sky, maybe as much as 40% of all the directions in the sky, in, you see this. Faint, mostly, some places bright, but it's, it's pretty widespread. And so now with the Green Bank Telescope, we can really zero in on some of these objects and uh, do much more accurate work, ask much more sophisticated questions, and get uh, a much clearer idea of where this material has come from and where it's going. So as you map the hydrogen above and below the, the pancake of the Milky Way, with the Green Bank Telescope, I've seen some of your images. It's, it looks like there's lots and lots of stuff out there. But there is. There is <laughs> lots of stuff out there. Of course, I only point in directions where I think I'm going to find something. Um, and with the Green Bank Telescope, we've looked at the biggest and most unusual ones to start with. Um, but it's true. There's one cloud I'm working on with some astronomers and students in Wisconsin um, that looks for all the world like a comet plunging into the Milky Way. Only its size dwarfs that of comets. Its size dwarfs I mean, you wouldn't even notice the solar system in an object this big. This, this object is, um, oh, it's, I mean, it stretches many, many, many degrees across the sky and is really uh, many, um, maybe a thousand light years across in physical size. Right. So we're just, we're just figuring that thing out. That's, that's very exciting. And just in, I mean, in recent weeks, we've made a lot of progress in understanding where that's coming from. And I think that's a little piece of gas that could have been its own galaxy, could have been its own little Milky Way, but for whatever reason didn't quite get its act together, didn't quite get dense enough to make stars. And meanwhile, here's the big old Milky Way sweeping up all the stuff in the neighborhood, and so we caught it and it's coming in. And, and it looks like a comet because we're dragging the stuff in, or it, why is it all... The reason it looks like a comet is that because uh, in a way, as it falls, it's running into the atmosphere of the Milky Way. And the Milky Way is acting like kind of like a wind blowing back against it and stripping pieces of it off, the tail behind it. Cool. It's, it's like, uh, yeah, we, um, we lucked out with that one. <laughs> okay, but um, now I want to talk to you a little bit about these bubbles because you talk about primordial gas and gas that hasn't really been... Um, part of the Milky Way or part of star formation, you've been also detecting some some bubbles that are the result of the other end of the... Yeah, you're right. That's the other end of the process is what happens when stars blow up and they really uh, 
fling these elements out into the uh, into the gas of the Milky Way. It would put, make tremendous energy. It's a, it's the the biggest explosions we have in the area. Um, these supernova, as they're called, because the uh, when the star goes off and at the end of its lifetime, a very massive star, it brightens up brighter than the whole rest of the Milky Way. And so the uh, the ancient Greeks called new stars novae, and means just means new. And uh, the, every once in a while there was a supernovae. <laughs> and uh, these things we now realize is the end point of the evolution of very massive stars. And when they go off, they just make a big explosion and a big bubble in their neighborhood. And they clear off things for many light years around them. Um, now, what's interesting about these is that uh, the explosion dies down. And when you have an explosion on Earth, you can make a, a, a big bubble of hot gas, but very quickly it dies down. Uh, once, once the explosion ends, the, the wind comes back in, and in, in, in seconds it's, it's gone. But here out in space, these bubbles created by the stars are so vast, and interstellar gas moves relatively slowly so that these bubbles can persist a million years. And whereas the evidence of the explosion is long gone, all of a sudden we see a bubble. And that tells us that in that spot some million years ago, something blew up. Now, it's often difficult to find out exactly what was there or where it came from. In one case we found just recently, um, in the inner part of the Milky Way, we found evidence for a bubble that must have required hundreds of stars to blow up one right after another. Although I say right after another, it was over the course of a million years. And it just generated this huge column of gas reaching up out of the Milky Way, really to quite extraordinary heights. And at its edge, it plowed up a, a ridge of hydrogen. And that's what we detected with the Green Bank Telescope. We detected this ridge of hydrogen sticking way up out of the Milky Way. And as we gradually put the pieces together, it really took several years of uh, observation and, and a lot of thinking to understand this. We began to realize that we were seeing a huge structure that had originated down in the Milky Way, probably with a cluster of very massive stars that over a million or 10 million years actually went off one after another. Um, and as the effects of one would die down, another one would just go off. Um, we don't quite know where this happened. Its, its base is obscured both by time and by dust and by confusion with a lot of other things. But it made this huge plume of hydrogen sticking up out of the uh, the Milky Way. And once we knew it was there, we could find traces of it. It's actually glowing very faintly in the optical. Uh, with an optical telescope, we were um, able to uh, get some data and look at it, and you could see a very faint glow from hydrogen filling this, this uh, huge column. So that was quite an interesting object. How big is it? Um, you know, it is... 10,000 light years sticking up out of the galactic plane so that the signal from the top takes 10,000 years to reach the bottom of it. Okay, now I know you've come up with an analogy that I think most of us can relate to for how big it would look in the sky. Oh yes, it's, it covers a huge patch of the sky. So if you took a standard cafeteria tray and held it out at arm's length, that's about how big Actually, it's bigger than that. That's, it's bigger than that. But that's, so you've got to imagine that you're looking up at the sky and you're seeing something that is that big, as big as a cafeteria tray held out at arm's length. That's huge. It is a huge thing. Yes, it's huge on the scale of the Milky Way. Is it logical that so many stars would explode in supernova explosions all in one place? 
Yeah, it is, because stars tend to be formed in clusters. What typically happens is you get a cloud of gas which holds itself together by its own gravitation, maybe a little bit of external forces, and then some perturbation happens. Something happens to, to make the cloud go unstable. It may collide with another cloud. It may, um, uh, there may be a chain, it may hit, hit the spiral arm of a, of a galaxy. There's a number of, it, it may get hit by a supernova, by a star's blast wave coming out, may do it, may make that cloud unstable, and it starts to make stars. And these clouds, they can have as many, um, the capability of making a million stars, really, they're very massive clouds, but usually only a small fraction of that goes into the stars. And the stars form together in a very tight knot, it turns out. I was reading something about this just yesterday. Typically, the stars will form in a very small cluster, a lot of very massive stars. And for every um, uh, big star, though, you get lots of little stars. So most of the stars that form are about like the sun, a very modest sort of star. But for every 100 stars like the sun, you'll get one that's 10 or 20 times the size of the sun. And so if you have 10,000 masses of gas going into stars, you'll get a bunch of big ones. And in, in the inner part of the galaxy, sort of halfway between us and the center of the Milky Way, which is where this big plume of gas that we found is located, there's really a lot more star formation than there is locally. Our Earth is actually kind of in the boondocks as far as star formation goes. We've got Orion, we've got a few things scattered out here. But if you get another halfway in toward the center of the Milky Way, then the, the action's pretty fierce there. There's lots of new stars being formed, a lot more gas clouds collapsing. And so um, the cluster that probably made this big super explosion was a big cluster. I mean, it was one of the biggest clusters in the galaxy at its time, but it was by no means exceptional. We know of other clusters that are just as big. We can even see one this time of year. I don't know if it's a... I think it's a real cluster. Is the Pleiades a, a group of stars all made from the same Yeah, the, the, gas? the Pleiades is a, is a great example. Now, that doesn't have any really massive stars in it, but that's a, a good example of a, a cluster that was made from a single cloud of gas. And what's really interesting about that, too, especially interesting to me now, is that uh, it as people have tried to understand how stars are made from these in these clusters, it turns out that, that that process flings a lot of members out. That what the Pleiades probably started off with twice as many stars, or maybe even three times as many stars, and a bunch of them just got flung out. Um, you know, it's like like a square dance out of control where you just take someone and you swing your partner and you fling them on out of the room, <laughs> and then the rest of them kind of shrink a little bit together, and. Um, uh, you're left with something just very much like the Pleiades and then with a lot of other stars scattered around. Mm -hmm. So um, the sun was probably almost certainly born in a cluster like that. And the sun may have even been born as part of a binary system paired with another star that got broken up and flung out in this part of this uh, star uh, birth system. Well, I guess we're lucky we just have one. We are lucky we just have one. Makes things more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't For know if we could have planets if we had two stars. Uh, uh, going around two different pulls on us. So um, the importance of looking at both ends of of this story, fresh gas coming into the Milky Way and and processed gas being flung out of the Milky Way, what does that, that tell us in the big picture about us, about the Milky Way, about the universe? Well, in a way, you've got to kind of understand both ends to understand either end. You really have to if, if you think that you're seeing gas which has been enriched by supernova remnants, and by the way, that gas that is uh, plowed up 
by the, in the walls of this bubble, that could be itself forming new stars right there then. And so those stars will have incorporate in them the elements generated by the previous generation of stars. I mean, as far as uh, interesting things to think about us as we sit here on Earth whirling about our particular star, um, we're a carbon-based life form. We depend on carbon and oxygen. And carbon and oxygen were not present in the early universe. These uh, pristine clouds, these primordial clouds that are coming in do not have much carbon and oxygen. And so it would be harder to get a kind of chemistry going, be harder to form life. Whereas the kind of stars that are forming now are forming in environments that are very much enriched by the, all these generations of stars. And so they're forming with a lot more carbon and oxygen than the Earth has had and than the solar system had. And so it probably is easier for them to get a carbon-based chemistry going. Mm. So as far as life is, going, is concerned, you know, it may get easier as time goes on. The other end of it is if you don't want to be around one of these big stars when they go off. Right. Yes. <laughs> you really don't want to be anywhere near one. Um, although there's evidence that the very early solar system was near one of these. I guess that's still a little bit under debate. But um, so as there was a lot more star formation and a lot more supernovae when the galaxy was young, when the Milky Way was young, these things were going off all the time. And that probably had an unfortunate effect on any life that was in the Milky Way. But now things are calming down. There's advantages to being out in the boondocks if you want to have a calm life, you know. You don't have these explosions going off all the time, you know, vaporizing your atmosphere. So I think that um, uh, the whole cycle is really tied in with uh, how we got here and what our future may be and whether there'll be anybody else around to talk to in the future mm -hmm. uh, aside of people on Earth. So we, we've heard the expression, we are star stuff, and that is for real. Oh, yes. yes. And we are supernovae stuff. <laughs> we're supernova stuff and star stuff, yeah. So you say there's evidence that we're in a bubble ourselves? You know, you're right. And that's what got me into this business many years ago. Um, people were starting to study the gas right near the sun and couldn't find any. And... Um, you, you look for like shadows against nearby stars that would indicate a cloud between us and the nearby star, and there just wasn't any. And so people are very painstakingly trying to map out the gas near the sun and concluded a while back that we are in a big, huge bubble, a void that must have been created by supernova uh, some tens of millions of years ago, probably a cl uh, several supernova it took to make this big bubble. Now, we're far away from where the supernova went off, that by the time the energy reached us, it was just a gentle washing. It may have increased the cosmic rays. I don't know whether we saw, we probably wouldn't even see any more aurora or northern lights or anything like that. Although it's a curious question, we don't know that much, actually, about the history of our local neighborhood. It's very difficult to piece it together, and, and if there's nothing there, it's even harder to understand because <laughs> you don't really have anything to work with. Um, but we're gradually getting the picture that this is a common thing in galaxies, that stars may find themselves just drifting through bubbles and then drift out again. The bubbles can be very long-lived, tens of millions of years, maybe hundreds of millions of years. And so, um, yeah, this, the, uh, the sun is in one of these big bubbles, though. And so we, our neighborhood, our local neighborhood, was influenced by... Um, a supernova. Or you could put it another way, which is an interesting thing to think about. Um, if we were in one of these clouds instead that's dense enough and is starting to make new stars, we wouldn't be able to see the Milky Way. 
because there'd be so much gas and dust around that the starlight couldn't get through. And so people in, in Orion, for example, or out near Orion might not be able to see the Milky Way because they're in one of these dense clouds. Our neighborhood's been cleared out. We get a good vision. We can look right out and see other galaxies out to the edge of the universe. But that's not true for people in other parts of the Milky Way if there are other people, if there are people in other parts of the Milky Way. So there are advantages to being in the boondocks no matter on what scale you look. Advantages to Amen. being here in, <laughs> in rural Pocahontas <laughs> County and advantages to being in the boondocks of the Milky Way, too. There are. That's very good. Um, Jay, we're about out of time. Thanks so much for stopping in and uh, joining us for Mountain Radio Astronomy today. You're very welcome. It's been fun. I'll leave you now with a few more seconds from Moore's 1978 song called Galaxy. You can see now why it was appropriate for this month's Mountain Radio Astronomy. We'll see you next month. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.